Good morning to you all. We are here at the beginning of another school year, and uh, many of you are beginning seminary altogether. You are here for the first time in Wilmore, and we welcome you. Others of you are in that long and deep trough <laughs> between the joy of beginning and the joy of ending. <laughs> and your whole question is, can I hang on and survive? So I want to give a shout out to you folks there. Others of you are entering into that uh, ending phase, and you know you're ending, and your motivation is just disappearing for doing anything. A few of you are nodding your heads, and you need special prayer to fi finish well this, this, uh, this school year or this semester. Uh, I am the kind of person who has trouble with beginnings, actually. Um, I was in Starbucks over at Kohl's some time ago and ran into one of our students who was so excited about opening convocation. And she declared that this was the highlight of the whole year. This is the most wonderful time ever. This is the grandest time. She lives for the opening convocation, all the pageantry. And I have to tell you that pageantry is not my thing. It's a bit of an agony for me, actually. Sorry to say that. Um, I'm glad I was in opening convocation. It was a wonderful time. But it takes me some energy to gear up for it emotionally and then for me, there's always an undercurrent. I'm aware of how much work lies ahead. You students have finally probably read your syllabi for the first time, I don't know. And you have now seen what lies ahead for you. And so beginnings have, um, I think, a certain measure of trepidation associated with them. Uh, although I hope it's not as bad as what uh, you might have heard the story about Johnny who was beginning yet another year of middle school. And uh, he had been through three days of the new year when on the fourth morning at the breakfast table, his mother was serving him the scrambled eggs and he pounded his fist on the table and he said, I'm not going back at all. I've had it. And his mother said, well, Johnny, what's the trouble? And he said, here's the trouble. He said, the students don't like me. The teachers despise me. He said, when I walk down the hallway, the janitor turns and won't give me any eye contact. He said, when I even walk into the school in the morning, said, all the neighborhood dogs are barking and growling at me. I've had it with school. I'm not going back. And she said, Johnny, get a hold of yourself. You must go to school. You are the principal. <laughs> and I'm just wondering that there may be a few folk in the room who, who had to be pried out of bed this morning, and I don't know, but God be with you, and hopefully we'll, we'll do well. The Gospel of John actually um, has a great interest in beginnings. Among other things, this story that was read this morning is identified as the very first of Jesus' miracles that he performed. And um, at first blush, it seems as if this miracle happens in a, in, a, in a casual way. It happens accidentally, almost. We're told there was a wedding. Well, uh, then we're told that uh, the primary character seems to start out to be Mary. Mary was invited. Almost as an afterthought, Jesus is invited. And then almost as a castaway, oh, and his disciples came along with him as well. Uh, then we're told that it happened that the wine ran out. And so what seems to be a very accidental kind of thing turns out to be Jesus' first miracle, but I want to point you to an insight that Daniel Wallace 
supplies in his uh, New Testament Greek grammar, I think is really interesting. He points out that most all translations, including the one we, looked, we had this morning, probably mistranslate the last verse um, of it, or actually, the, yes, where it says, and this was the first of his miracles. Most likely, it better reads, Jesus made this one the first of his miracles. In other words, Jesus wasn't simply caught off guard, didn't simply fall into this. Jesus took what was given him and then made it his first miracle. He took charge. He was in control. There was a lot to hear. There are lots of moving parts in this story here. And there are lots of things to say. In fact, uh, many of you have heard the story read at weddings, where we read that Jesus, by implication, is affirming marriage, sexuality. He is affirming family. He is affirming procreation in a way by being there and blessing that event with his presence. Then there, of course, is the uh, attention given. Every commentator comments on the six stone water jars that were for Jewish purification. And Jesus is going to turn that water into wine. And this, uh, as most people note, has something to say about the way Jesus' ministry and revelation, the, the new covenant under him, will advance the work of God from the old to the new. There will be something more than purification happening under Jesus and something more than temporary purification under him. And then there's the message about abundance. How cool is it that we're told how many gallons are in each of these jars? We're told how much wine is involved. This is probably far more wine than is actually needed. And if they're, only, if they're perhaps halfway through the wedding, one wonders if there's going to be a lot of wine beyond that to give away. Abundance reminds us of John 10.10, where Jesus said, I have come, you know how it goes, that they may have life, and not just life, but life in its overflowing abundance. This is a key piece of the gospel message. God doesn't just barely save us. He all the way saves us, and that's good news for us. Then there is the interesting point of the this hour. This is not my hour. And this helps us see that Jesus is already at the very beginning aiming towards the end. He's already looking towards the cross and towards his glorification. And so in a way, we're learning already that Jesus is not simply a miracle worker. He's not simply a wise person. Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. He will be the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. That's the Jesus who is presented to us in this gospel. Everything in light of the hour up there. And then there's the business of his dear mother who comes to him and says, uh, you know, they're out of wine and, and he has what every translation team has struggled with. How to convey whatever that Greek is. Very literally, what to me and to you, woman, which can sound very harsh and very impolite. Most people conclude that it's a form of an idiom that simply says something like this, you need to understand, dear woman, that I am not under your control. I am actually here to fulfill the will of my Father in heaven. And if I can paraphrase, thanks for giving birth to me. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for raising me. Thanks for discipling me at your knee. Thanks for your model of godliness. Thanks for all that. Now I set my course 
towards the cross and towards doing my Father's will. There's all of that. But we will miss it all unless we see what comes at the very end, that last verse where we really find the whole story drawn in to a point. And what we read there is this. Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I actually intentionally misspoke early on when I referred to this as the first of Jesus' miracles. That's a synoptic term, and a term in the book of Acts as well. The usual Greek uh, vocabulary word there is dunamis, sign, wonder, awesome thing. But John's gospel does an interesting turnabout on that and insists on calling Jesus' miracles signs, a semeon, a sign. In other words, when we call a miracle, notice the word miracle itself, a marvel, something awesome, our attention is drawn to the thing itself, to how amazing that thing is. Look at this amazing miracle. John says, don't miss it. You're looking through that miracle to something beyond the miracle. And what we see here then is that John makes it clear in how this story ends that Jesus was doing something through this miracle. He was pointing them beyond the miracle. He was performing this as his first sign. And that sign was that Jesus would reveal his glory, his glory. And in revealing his glory, something happens to the disciples. They become able to believe in him as never before. Now, the business of uh, of miracles and of signs and revealing glory brings us to this interesting word, glory, doxa, which, uh, my, how much time could we take here? Not a whole lot, sorry, Jessica, we won't. But doxa, glory, what is glory? I'll offer three little pieces here very quickly. First of all, Jesus himself is glorious. Jesus revealed himself as glorious, and glory in much of the Old Testament and the New, often has with it the connotation of brightness, glow, radiance, not necessarily one that can be seen or radiance could be seen with the, with the physical eye, but some kind of weightiness that strikes us as we see someone. Have you known people who walk into a room? Yes, you do. I can name several. When they walk into a room, everyone notices. They fill the room with their presence. They have that kind of commanding presence. They have a radiance, a glory, an aura about them. And what we're told here is that the disciples, when they surveyed what had happened and looked at Jesus, something about him glowed with brightness and radiance and aura about him. A second thing, though, that as we read through this gospel, it becomes clear that Jesus is a glow with radiance, not of his own making. He is a glow with the radiance of his Father's own glory. Jesus is glorious because the Father in him is glorious. Jesus would say later in, in the gospel, when, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He declares in chapter 5, I and the Father are one. He declares in chapter 14, I am the way to the Father. And so for Jesus to be a glow, he himself becomes another sign. He becomes a sign to the Father. He says, in a sense, look at me. Yeah, look at me. Now look at the Father, because I am aglow with the Father's glory. A 
third thing about glory we shouldn't miss has to do with that you cannot be you cannot be a passive observer to glory. Now, it's really funny. My family, if they were here, well, my wife is, if I make any reference to movies, they should immediately begin laughing. I've seen enough movies to count on my hand. And so I don't want to pass myself off, you know, as some kind of a movie critic who views a movie, you know, every weekend or whatever. But I did, I did remember one movie, and perhaps you remember it too from long, long ago, and even those of you who are younger in the room, perhaps have heard of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Cheers, rise, you know. And perhaps one of the most famous scenes, bracket, apart from the Nazi getting chewed up by the airplane propeller, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but near the end, at the climactic moment, the Nazis are gathered around the Ark of the Covenant. They have found it. And for our purposes here, I'm going to say the ark was full of the glory of God. They should not have opened that. Because the glory of God is not some fun, cute, little warm thing. The glory of God is an immensely powerful radiance. Perhaps one could even call it fatally powerful beauty. It reaches out. And the hearts of those Gestapo agents were not right with God. We'll put it that way. Their hearts were bent on evil and torture and death and everything that God is against. And so when they unwisely pried the lid of that box off, the bright glory of God radiated out in one of the most spectacular scenes in that movie and exploded the head of one officer, melted the face of another, destroyed everything and everybody in its sight. That is the glory of God. In the in, in and among those who set themselves against God's will and God's way in a, in a final and definitive sense, that is the glory of God. But how wonderful that the glory of God is not just a destructive power, but a transforming power. And here we must go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Perhaps you remember how this goes. I'll put it this way. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled faces, gazing upon the glory of God, are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Indiana Jones warned his, his partner there, Marion, do not open your eyes whatever you do. Don't look at it whatever you do. Here Paul is saying, to those who want to be like God, to those who want to follow God, open your eyes. Behold the glory of the Lord. Stare at his beauty. And guess what? That glory radiates, comes at us, wishes to envelop us, and actually transform us into the likeness of Christ, a radiant, transforming presence from God. This precipitates an obvious question for us. How does transformation take place? We all want transformation. I'm not sure I've ever seen a church sign that says we're against transformation. Don't want it. <laughs> I've never read a book that says uh, if, you, if you want to be transformed, don't read this book or whatever. No, we're, we want transformation. This is one of, the, one of the key things we seek after. We want the kind of change that's real and fundamental. Personally, we want it for the church and we want it for the world. 
And so the question naturally arises, how in the world does transformation take place? I want to offer four possible answers to that, and I want to warn you that I don't subscribe to the first three. That's just so that I don't get any amens along the way. Um, I've been in too many services where the wrong answer gets praised by too many people, and then confusion descends upon the congregation. So the first three are wrong answers I'm going to tell you ahead of time. How do we transform ourselves? How do we transform the church? How do we transform the world? The first answer, which is wrong again, is that the job is ours. We must transform ourselves. We must transform the church. We must transform the world. You say, you must be joking. I say, no, I'm not. This is, in fact, what I think the primary answer is offered among us, among the church world. We too often take one parable of Jesus in which he describes the absent landlord who goes away to a far place, gives a job to people to do, and then he says, oh, and one, time, and one day long, long from now, I will show up, and you'd better have the job done, more or less. And so for lots of us folk, Jesus has gone off to heaven, and he has given us a commission to get a big job done. Self-transformation, church transformation, world transformation. He's going to show up one day. He's going to grade us on how we have done at the job of transformation. We change ourselves. <clears throat> In this view, we are looking for techniques. We're looking for strategies. We're looking for uh, wisdom for how to do stuff and get stuff done. How do I change my own soul? Well, let's figure out what to do step by step to change my own soul. How shall I turn a church around? How shall I grow a church? How shall I, shall I plant a church? How shall I transform a whole community? How can I create genuine disciples? How can I create resilient disciples for our age? How do I make fully committed disciples? Well, if you come to the seminary, we will tell you how to do that. Joke, joke. <laughs> we'll tell you how to do that. We will fill you with the strategies, with the procedures, and with the information you need to do to go out and transform our world. Let's get busy transforming our world. Joke, no amens there. Let's go out and transform our world. One of my faculty friends from several years ago um, spoke a lot about what he called practical atheism. It's doing God's work as if God is not present. It's taking upon ourselves the role and the task of getting stuff done. Um, it is working with God as an absentee land, uh, a, a landlord who, again, will show up. The manifestation of this, I think, is when we have lots of business that we're doing for the church and for God, and there is very little prayer going on. There is very little vertical focus, very little attention to whether God is even present, a great deal of confidence in what we can figure out about how to do stuff and get stuff done, there's the sign that we have been converted into practical atheists. And my guess, I'm, I'm sad to say this, but my guess is that a number of us here today, it will take us going through seminary and going out and trying to transform ourselves and our churches and our worlds before we hit that wall and we find ourselves saying, I can't do this. I thought I could. 
I thought I could make it happen. I've followed all the procedures, I've done all the strategies, and I am not turning any water into wine. It's not happening. This is why uh, a great many people, I can name four or five of my own acquaintances, have turned away radically from this, it's our job to do transformation, to the other extreme and the polar opposite. And that is, it is God's job to transform and only God's job to transform. You and I can't do it. And so in order to elevate the glory of God and to elevate the sovereignty of God, we will suppress and eliminate all human behavior and activity and we'll basically say, oh, I love this little riddle, where does an elephant sleep? And of course the answer is, wherever the elephant wants to sleep. When does, where does revival come? Wherever God wishes revival to come. Can you make a revival happen? No, only God can. Can you stop a revival if God starts it? No, you can't. And in those questions, in those answers to those questions, the human element is bracketed out entirely. The logic of it is that we're giving God full credit for everything because God must be all in all. In other words, there's a monergism that sets into place. Monergism, mono, one, erg, work. There is only one worker, there's only one character uh, for us to attend to, and that's God, and God will do whatever God wants whenever God pleases to do it. Um, that is quite alive, and it's especially alive among folks who have had the allergic reaction to the kind of humanistic Christianity, the we will do it, folks, when they have seen the light that it can't be done, they often will flip to the then only God can and you and I have no role in it to play. Well, the story in Cana is an interesting story to contemplate on this because the point of the whole thing at the end is that Jesus revealed his own glory and then a few chapters later in chapter 4, when that incident is recalled, the writer says, oh, Cana of Galilee, Jesus returned there again where he turned the water into wine. Jesus gets all the credit for it. And yet, Jesus does a risky thing in the, in the wedding story that we have looked at. And that is that Jesus actually enlists the work of human beings in that task. He actually says, oh, there are some stone water jars there. I want those filled. I don't know if you've ever carried water. I have done a little bit. Uh, before I decided to invest in hoses, I had to water my garden which is about 150 yards from our house down the hill, had to water a garden with five-gallon buckets. It's laborious work. It'll tear the sockets right out of your shoulders if you let it do it that way. And you find yourself saying, why did I do this? Water's heavy. And to carry that much water would have, would have required somebody to do some calculations, somebody to do some organization of the team, creative um, problem solving, all kinds of human effort required as input into it. And here is somehow the, the, the issue, somehow or other, human beings don't get the credit for this. We'll come back to this in a moment. Which leads many folks to go to a third answer. Again, the wrong answer. So answer number one, it's our job to perform transformation. Answer number two, it's God's job alone to create, to pr produce transformation. 
third answer, still wrong, I warn you, and that is, at least as I see it, I'll, I'm offering this to you, and that is that it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the old wonderful both and. It's the way of solving a lot of our problems where we actually don't think into the issue, we just add stuff together that doesn't work on their own and want that to work. And so the both and comes up with a slogan that actually is partly right. I don't want to dismiss it altogether, but it says something like this, we do our part and God does God's part. There is our part to do, there is God's part to do, and it really is an attractive kind of answer and it kind of makes a certain amount of sense. When you read the Bible and you read how many things we're commanded to do, you know, we've got to be involved. God is involved. How does this work? The problem with the both-and approach is that it, it envisions a simple partnership between the human and the divine. The simple partnership says, we do X amount of the percentage of the work, God picks up the slack and finishes it out to the 100%. The problem with that is that when it comes time for, let's say, where the glory goes, we're going to have to divide the glory up too. Where we get 15% of the glory, God gets 85. I think that's a pretty good deal. No, no amens there. <laughs> but that tends to be how we tend to think in terms of the partnership, the both end, our part, God's part in all of this. There's always a danger in being very autobiographical in sermons and such. Um, so I take the risk knowing that your experience might not be exactly as mine was. But I had a real spiritual crisis back when I was about 25, 26 years old. I was raised in high-octane Christianity. My parents were all in and more. I was raised from knee-high up in intense discipleship. Every evening, family devotions. All of us prayed. All of us prayed. We prayed for the world. We prayed for the, I won't go into it all. We were serious. Um, we, we, we carried the flame for God and God's work in, in a way, and I'm very grateful for it. I have often, often, often thanked God for my heritage and my mother and my father. They also made it very clear that there is not much progress apart from seeking God with all one's heart. And so from a very early age, I was reading my Bible, praying. My mother would wake me up in the morning. That meant I would come downstairs and sit between a chair and a bookcase and there I would read, and there I would pray. She would make sure I prayed. And then I'd be called to breakfast, and on it went for the rest of the day. So I know what that's like. And as I, being a serious Christian, wanted to follow God with all my heart, I ended up, again, this is my story, it may not be yours, I ended up having some of the symptoms of an addict, of binging and purging on the devotional life and the means of grace. The idea that I would, oh, this, I've got to get into it. And so plunge in with all, uh, all my energies. And then after a while, wear out. And just basically have to say, no more. Plunge in again with all my heart. And after a while, no more. And I remember pretty clearly, we lived in an apartment in Lexington near St. Joe's Hospital. When I came to a, a breaking point, I can't do this. I'm ricocheting back and forth. This is tearing me apart. And I said, I cannot pray another prayer. I cannot read any more scripture. I'm toast. I'm done. 
I don't recommend that. Not a particularly safe thing to do. I don't recall how long it lasted. My faint memories of it is that it lasted perhaps three weeks, maybe four. Somewhere in that, by God's grace, I happened upon Wesley's sermons. Don't ask me why I was reading his sermons when I wouldn't read the Bible. I don't understand that one. (laughs) But I happened upon Sermon 16, which I'd never heard of before. Sermon 16 in the standard set, The Means of Grace. I really didn't know what those, that phrase didn't mean much to me. Uh, And what he meant by them, especially that we saw on the screen, seeking God through the scriptures, seeking God in prayer and fasting, seeking God in the Eucharist, which we have right here, seeking God in genuine Christian, intimate Christian fellowship, and especially seeking God in service to the poor, the disenfranchised, etc. Well, I wasn't quite unfamiliar with that kind of stuff, but the way he packaged it together was really quite revealing. And I want to read you the words that struck me and actually, in a sort of sense, saved my life. He said something like this. All of these uh, means of grace are nothing but dry leaves. They are utterly powerless. They have no strength in themselves apart from God. That dawned on me like a light from outside. Why was I doing these things? I thought they were powerful tools in my hands that I was going to shape myself with, shape the church with. And Wesley says, powerless, dry leaves. Have you taken a dry leaf and crumpled it? Nothing. It goes into nothing. Why would I do nothing? Why would I do something that has no merit, no power in and of itself? It's because, and here was the big insight, because God has given these to us. We have not experimented our way forward into discovering them. God has given these to us. Asbury Seminary has not invented these means of grace. And for the record, Wesley did not invent these means of grace. They are found in the scripture because God has said, seek me in these ways. In essence, he's saying, gaze upon my glory in these ways. The weight lifted from my shoulders. I was no longer experimenting. I was no longer following mom and dad. I was no longer following any of the mentors in a sense I had. I was following the scriptures and the prom- the, both the command and the promise of God. Seek me in these ways and I will show up. I will show up. The means of grace. It's a different kind of partnership. It's not a simple partnership. We do our part, God does his. And I love the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3. Here you see the picture here. I planted, Apollos watered. God gave the growth. God alone gives life. And there you find, I think, the picture there, as well as the picture here in the Cana story. There's a lot of work to be done in hauling water. But hauling water will not create life or create wine. We could experiment with that. We could close all these doors and begin pumping this place with water up to our necks and wait for it to turn to wine. It won't happen. Because it's not in that work itself. That work itself is useless and powerless apart from the very presence of God. 
I think what we have then is a suggestion in this story about moving forward in the means of grace, all of them. Whenever we're thinking means of grace, may I suggest this, first of all, follow the example of Mary, precious woman, and I'm going to what she said first. They have no wine. They have no wine. Declaration of bankruptcy. Declaration of emptiness. Declaration, we haven't got it. Declaration, we don't have some wine back there we can use. Declaration, we can't make wine. What a precious point to come to in our lives. I have no wine. I can't make it happen. I can't transform myself. I ain't got it. God loves that. God loves that. Then we hear Mary next say, do whatever he says. Not experiment your way forward. Not try to find your way into my graces. But he will tell us what to do. And in fact, he has told us what to do. We step into what he has given us to do. And then my third recommendation here is something like this. Back away and give God the freedom to, to fulfill and to show his glory however he wishes to do so. Notice the peculiarity of the story. Jesus doesn't wave a wand over anything. He doesn't actually, even in this story, address the wand, the water. He doesn't near, he doesn't come near the, the jars. And in fact, it's all the commentaries struggle with when the water actually turned to wine. It's not even clear when it happened. It's just simply, he says, draw from and take to the master of the ceremony, let him take a sip of it. There is no fanfare, there is no bolt of lightning. There is no abracadabra, so to speak, about it. And as you and I will walk in the means of grace, we're going to have to learn to say to God, and I won't specify how you will show up, but you have promised to, and I'm going to carry water, just like you said. Praise God. If this morning you're finding yourself as an advanced believer, God has probably spoken in his own way to you. That's great. Some of you are right on the beginning cusp of learning what ministry is like, and you thought you were coming to learn all the tricks of the trade. There may need to be some inner cleansing of that hope. Some of you may not have yet stepped into the faith. But if the Lord has spoken to you, and you have sensed his voice, and you find yourself saying, you know what? I'm willing I'm willing to say I have no wine. And I'm willing to say, I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to come here, and I'm going to put myself here and receive from you a gift. And I'm going to wait for you to show up as you wish in obedient trust. I invite you as well to come. May God bless us.